We're in Exodus. I want to draw your attention to chapter number 5. Chapter number 5 at the end. And the reason I do so is uh, because where we left off last time. Now, for those who are, uh, are enrolled in the Institute and you'd like to work on the book of Exodus for credit, let me warn you, there are seven sagas. I do not know how long it will take me to get through Exodus, so I'm breaking it down into smaller chunks. And so I'm going to have one major project uh, and uh, one major outline for all seven sections of Exodus that I'm going to exposit with you. It'll take some time to get through that. So I don't want you to feel like you have to get your project done by the end of the first, uh, the, the first segment of Exodus. But I do have a, uh, a course outline forthcoming. And uh, if you want to start wrapping your mind around a, po- a possible project to do, what I'm going to ask you to do as students in the Institute is to, number one, outline the book, and you'll have all seven segments to be able to complete that. And the sooner you get it in, the sooner I can record your grade, that kind of thing. So um, don't push it off till segment seven and then be like, oh, I have to do this. <laughs> it might be three years from now, I don't know. Uh, but uh, the other project that you need to focus on would be similar to what you did with Genesis. I'm going to ask you to uh, look in depth at the Mosaic Covenant. Just like you looked at the Abrahamic Covenant for those who took Genesis, I'm going to ask that you do the same thing for the Mosaic Covenant for Exodus. And uh, there'll be seven sections that will be provided in your course outline for that. And again, you've got plenty of time to work on these projects. Take diligent notes as we go through verse by verse. That will count as your lecture materials. You can uh, show me those. And then also, uh, there'll be some scripture memory that I'm going to give to you to memorize some verses throughout the book. But I'm looking forward to it. And Exodus really excites me. It's been good pouring over it and pouring over it and pouring over it. Now, I don't know that I'll ever feel that I'm ready to preach it, but here we go. Amen? So Exodus chapter 5, look with me beginning at verse number 20, and you see where I left off last time with you, looking at these hard questions that Moses has for Jehovah. Now, you know the backdrop. Israel is in dire straits in Egypt. They're under the heavy hand, the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. We can see the backdrop of how they got there. But I'll read with you these words, and I want you to sense the heart of Moses. I want you to to, to try to feel what he's feeling when he asks Jehovah what he asks. And we'll continue right over into chapter number 6. But look at verse number 20 of Exodus 5. And they met Moses and Aaron who stood in the way as they came forth from Pharaoh. Okay, so what happened? And they said unto them, The Lord look upon you and judge, because ye have made our savor, notice it's savor, to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. Moses and Aaron, you're going to stand before the Lord for this. This is your doing. You're the one who stirred up Pharaoh against us. That's their heart. Verse 22. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Adonai, not Jehovah, Adonai. Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? Why did you bring me out of Midian? Why are you stirring all this up? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, you're the one that wanted me to come and do this. 
He has done evil to this people. He's, he's brought nothing but hurt. Pharaoh has hurt these people. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. Wait a minute, I thought you said that you were going to bring them out. Lord, what's going on here? Do you see these hard questions for Jehovah? Hard questions for Adonai, I should say. Because he said unto Jehovah and said, Adonai, wherefore hast thou? Interesting play on the, the names of the Lord there. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. Okay, how's this going to fall out? Explanation. There's a colon in the verse after the word Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go. And with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord Jehovah. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name Jehovah was I not known unto them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, Jehovah, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it you for an inheritage. I am the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll help us as we consider this Yet second saga that Moses has recorded of your deliverance of your people from Egypt. Lord, as we approach this book of Exodus, we do so with humility, with gratitude in our hearts for Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Deliverer, that delivered us from the oppression of sin and Satan and has set us free through His shed blood on Calvary. Bless our time in Your Word tonight. Make it profitable unto eternity and for the growth of of the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ in our hearts and lives, and I will thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We broke uh, the book of Exodus into two major halves. The first half of Exodus dealing with redemption, which is where we find the sagas that we're looking at together. Uh, here, continuing on with saga number two tonight. Just to review saga number one, I'll do this quickly. Saga number one opens up and we understand the bondage of Israel. We understand the oppression of the Egyptians upon them, namely through Pharaoh. And we also noted the providence of God in leading them out of the land of Egypt. The backdrop of their bondage. How did they wind up there? They went down into Egypt, 70 souls with Jacob. And they prospered over hundreds of years. They were there. And they prospered and they multiplied to millions of people. And this provoked Pharaoh then to see them as a threat. And he began to make policies of progressive genocide against their, 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 un, their born babies, their young children. And uh, you had those two God-fearing midwives that we mentioned that the Lord uh, blessed because of their fearing God 
over Pharaoh and, uh, and looking after the protection of life. Interesting, we celebrate the, the, the words of our president today as we consider those midwives. Uh, praise the Lord for God-fearing people that respect life. The Lord raised up a deliverer for His people. The man was named Moses. We see this beginning in chapter number 2. Moses, we see his early years of providential protection. And um, the irony of how God's going to use this man that was supposed to never make it past infancy. And he's going to use that man against Pharaoh to bring his people out. We see his birth. We see his naming. We see a mother's intuition uh, in that his mother was moved to put him in the bulrushes and commit him to God's keeping. And then that... uh, Pharaoh's daughter heard the cries and was moved with compassion and came and delivered Moses out of that bulrush. And and, uh, then the providence of God seen in him being able to be nursed by his own mother again for months after that. And uh, then you see a son's frustration, a son's failure, if you will. As Moses grows, uh, he's now 40 years of age and we see the next encounter with Moses is He's the murderous mediator. He's trying to help his people, but he winds up killing an Egyptian and burying him in the sand. The next time he goes out, he sees two Hebrews striving, and he's going to help them. And they kind of say, what, are you going to bury me in the sand like you did that Egyptian the other day? He thought no one knew. And so Moses flees from the face of Pharaoh. He flees to Midian for the next 40 years of his life. He'll stay on the backside of the desert. He'll meet uh, Jethro there and marry one of Jethro's daughters. He'll have a family there in Midian, and that takes us through chapter 2. And we see at the end of chapter 2, the Lord begins to come back into the life of Moses, and He appears to him in a burning bush in chapter number 3, and we see Moses is called by Jehovah. He's commissioned, but he's reluctant. Lord, I'm not ready to go. I can't do it. He gives all these excuses. And the excuse is just to boil them down as he receives his commission from Jehovah. Jehovah said go, but Moses said no. And then that's the first excuse. The second excuse is, well, when I go, I don't know your name. What's your name? And then we see the reassurance of Jehovah, the I am, and then also the acceptance of Israel is promised that they will receive him. The third excuse, if that's not enough, he says, well, when I go, they're not going to listen to me anyway. Uh, Who am I that they should listen to me? And then God gives him three signs, three wonders to validate his call. And then we know that he needed a mouthpiece because Moses felt like he couldn't talk, so God raises up Aaron. And then as soon as Moses uh, is, is uh, seeing what God is doing, he says, Here am I, send him. Uh, yes, I love that part. Moses then gets ready to return to Egypt. And he heads back. He does so with Jethro's blessing. Remember we talked about him getting Jethro's blessing on returning. And uh, he has father-in-law's blessing to go back to his calling in Egypt. And the Lord guides him every step of the way. Chapter 4 closes down with uh, verse 23 with that. Then on the way back, an interesting thing occurs. We mentioned uh, the wife's intervention. And Zipporah there, Moses' wife, has to intervene and make sure that they're following the laws of circumcision. A bloody husband thou art to me, she says, by the time it's all said and done. And then after that's taken care of and they don't have to worry about the angel of the Lord coming against them anymore because they're violating the, the, the covenant token of circumcision, now Aaron and Moses reunite. and We see this brotherly reunion in chapter 4, verses 27 and 29 alongside a national reception at the conclusion in chapter 4. Now, chapter 5 opens, Moses and Aaron now confront Pharaoh. And they go in for this first confrontation and it goes, well, just like the Lord said it would because Pharaoh rejected them. 
Who is this Jehovah that I should obey Him? Who is this Lord that you mention? Uh, Why should I listen to Him? I'm the ruler of Egypt. Who is the Lord? Chapter 5, verses 1-9. through Then we mentioned how Pharaoh is then moved to make their burdens even heavier because he thinks they want time to go play three days' journey into the wilderness to go worship the Lord. Well, they have too much time on their hands and the idleness becomes the Pharaoh's playground, we said. And working with straw, really, working with no straw really stinks, doesn't it? Chapter 5, they, t- they still have to produce as many bricks as they did before, but this time without the proper materials to do it. And it's just burdensome, grievous. And so then that brings us to where we begin reading tonight. These hard questions that Moses has for Jehovah. It's not working out like I thought it was going to. Uh, I thought you said these things were going to occur. I went back to Pharaoh and it seems like things are getting worse and worse and worse. So this opens now the second saga. The second narrative portion, if you will, that Moses will recount for us. And how we see Israel will be liberated from Pharaoh's bondage. See, there has to be a need before the answer can come. We have to know that we're lost before we can ever be saved. And so Israel has gone down into Egypt and they're in oppressive bondage and they need deliverance. They need salvation. And so they're going to be liberated from Pharaoh's hard bondage on them. This really, verse 2 of chapter 6 opens up and we see the beginning of the end. The end of their bondage in Egypt. And I've just titled this one, The Straw That breaks the Pharaoh's back. One straw too much. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, all the way down to chapter 11. We're going to see how this unfolds. Moses is going to receive some reassurance from the Lord. I read much of that to you. But if we read through that again, I didn't do it when I read it the first time, but if you'll read through that again, you'll count as I did seven I will statements from Jehovah. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Seven times. He says, I will do this. And seven is a number of completion. Seven I wills of the Lord's deliverance. These are that. Well, chapter 6, verse 14 and on tells us about the Levites, the sons of Levi. And uh, Moses, if you know, His lineage, what tribe does he descend from? What tribe does Aaron descend from? Now, Levites is interesting. We're going to look back at their history when we come to this section, but uh, Exodus is where the Levites really begin to shine as a nation. Now, Levi and Simeon, they were brothers that received uh, really condemnation from Jacob in Genesis 49. You remember, they they weren't given an inheritance like the other sons were because of their wickedness in Shechem and other things that they had done. But the Levites, Levi, descended from Jacob, but that's, they're not priests until here. They receive their commission as the priestly tribe when they go into the land. But you see, the, 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 narrator, the narrator, Moses, is setting us up to see who the Levites will become. They're going to be dispersed among the nations. And so we need this genealogy. We need these names that are listed here because they're going to come into play as the Levitical priesthood uh, comes to fruition. These are that. Then we see Pharaoh's God and his prophet. In chapter 6, verse 28, it came to pass on the day when the Lord spake unto Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I am the Lord, speak thou unto Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and all I say, all that I say unto thee, Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, how shall Pharaoh hearken unto me? 
Who is Pharaoh's God? Who is his God? The Lord said unto Moses, See, I've made thee a God to Pharaoh. So now who is Pharaoh's God? Good question. And we see Pharaoh's God and the prophet of Pharaoh's God by the name of the man Moses. That's the first confrontation. The second confrontation opens up and we have these rod-swallowing serpents. Chapter 7, verses 8 through 13 shows us that. And then uh, chapter 7, verses 14, all the way through chapter 11, and verse number 10 gives us these signs of the Lord's supremacies. The signs of the Lord's supremacies alongside the sighs of the sinner's anguish. The sigh of the sinner's anguish. Why do I say that? Because we're approaching the plagues that will come upon Pharaoh. And you'll see these sinners sighing in all the anguish, all the heartbreak. What are these signs? What are these plagues that God will give to demonstrate His power, to demonstrate His supremacy over Pharaoh? Well, it begins with the blood river in chapter 7 and verse 14 to 25. One of my favorite songs I used to hear at Pensacola was One More Night with the Stinking Frogs. I don't know if you've ever heard that one or not, but uh, that's based off the plagues here in Egypt. One More Night with the Stinking Frogs. I'm sure it's stunk. Then we have the life lessons in chapter 8, verse 16 to 19. This is the finger of God. The finger of God. The life comes. After that, the fourth plague is He's the Lord of the flies. And the flies all come in chapter 8, verse 20 to 32. Then the hand of the Lord brings a heavy pestilence. And some of these I've just taken right out of the verses of Scripture. It's a cattle moraine. M-U-R-R-A-I-N. It's a, it's a disease on their cattle, and it's a, a plague upon their livestock and their livelihood, if you will. Chapter 9 opens up with that. The sixth plague is those bothersome boils and blains, is what the, the text reads and says. It's those boils that come upon them. And uh, interesting, at the end of that chapter, or at the verses 8 through 12, you find out they couldn't stand the priests of of Pharaoh couldn't stand. The magicians of Pharaoh couldn't stand before Moses. They just couldn't stand those bulls and blains. Amen. I wouldn't be able to stand it either. The seventh plague is the fear of the word of the Lord. It hails from the heavens like never before. And God sends this hail down. And each one of these times you read through these plagues, you know what happens. Pharaoh says, yeah, you can go. And then he changes his mind. Yeah, you can go. And he changes his mind. And he hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. He changes his mind. He changes his mind. He changes his mind. You can go. No, you can't go. You can go. No, you can't go. You can't go. No, you can't go. Say that fast ten times. That's fun. Every time you turn around, Pharaoh is pulling them back and reining them in and squeezing them harder because he's exerting himself against God. And the seventh sign was the fear of the word of the Lord, the hail that came from the heavens like never before. And then the eighth plague will give them stories to tell their grandchildren, to their children's children, to their sons' sons. They're going to be telling what the Lord did. Legions upon legions of these devouring locusts moving into the land of Egypt and devouring everything that wasn't destroyed by the hail, everything that's left over from the cattle being taken out, everything that, that, uh, that is left over from the flies and the lice and the frogs. I mean, what could be left? Not much. But now you have... These devouring locusts, legions of devouring locusts in chapter 10, verses 1 to 20. And then chapter 10, verse 21, shows us that darkness, the plague of darkness that came over the land of Egypt. 
a darkness it describes that you can actually feel. Now, I've been in dark places, spelunking and doing caving. You know, they always have that part on the tour where the guide takes you to this chamber, takes you to this room, right? You've been in there and says, all right, everybody turn your headlamps off, turn all your flashlights off, anything that glows covers it up. And then he goes over to the switch and shuts the switch off. And it's just so dark in there, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And it's just an eerie darkness. And you sit in there for a few minutes and you're really thankful for the light when it comes back on. Amen. Well, this was a darkness that was even more penetrating than that. This was a darkness that you can feel. I wonder what it was like when our Savior hung suspended between heaven and earth when He was being crucified and there was darkness on the land for the span of three hours. I wonder if that was a darkness similar to this darkness in Egypt, a darkness that you could feel, a darkness that just is is looming on you, a darkness which may be felt. And then the Lord saved the worst for last for Pharaoh. Saving the worst for last... All the firstborn of Egypt shall die. We'll deal with that when we come to it. But if you think about the firstborn of Egypt, why would the Lord do something like this? Keep in mind that it didn't begin here. This is the Lord's retribution. This is the wrath of God's judgment on a man who decided he could determine which firstborn would live and which firstborn wouldn't. And there was always an opportunity for salvation. There was no Egyptian household that had to suffer the loss of their firstborn if they would have just come under the blood. Just like Israel, they would have been spared from that plague of death on their firstborn. So before we throw rocks at God and say, what are you doing? We need to remember there's more to the story than meets the eye. And God saved the worst for last. All the firstborn of Egypt should die. This opens up the narrative concerning the Passover. Remember, we're still in saga number 2. The narrative of the Passover begins in chapter number 12 of Exodus. And it covers down through chapter 13. So chapters 12 and chapters 13, we see uh, here beginning in chapter 12, a celebration of redemption. There's new life through this lamb, the blood of the lamb that's applied to the doorposts that that everyone who's in a home that has that blood on the doorposts will be spared from the angel of death. When the angel of death uh, comes through Egypt, he'll pass over that house. That means he'll miss that house and death won't visit that house. The firstborn of that house will not die, but there were very specific things they had to do to make sure that that would happen. New life is found through the Lamb. There's a feast of remembrance that's given, an observance of an ordinance that God gives to the nation of Israel. Keep that in mind. It's the nation of Israel that receives this ordinance of Passover. And those that are orthodox in their faith to this day still observe this Passover, this Seder, if you will. We had, um, we had a dear brother come and, uh, and he did a Seder demonstration for us for one of our communion times uh, that we had uh, in our afternoon services. You remember uh, when he came through and did that? And it's interesting to see all the pictures of Jesus Christ that's even in a Seder uh, ceremony, a Seder remembrance that our Jewish friends observe in Passover. The observance of that ordinance is seen in chapter 12, verses 14 to 28. After that, we move into the midnight march. It's time to head out. Out of Egypt, I have traveled through the darkness dreary, that old hymn used to go. and So they make that midnight march. And they did as the Lord commanded. In chapter 12, verse 43 to 51, you see that they received further instructions on leaving Egypt. And 
We're going to learn the secret of living an unleavened life in chapter 13. As Exodus chapter 13 opens, verses 1 to 16, it's going to help us understand what redemption means through the blood. And we're going to be able to sing that song afresh and anew, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. And then I've got a special message for you that I'm working on and getting uh, prayed up for that even a donkey has to come through the Lamb. Amen. That's Georgia for you. Even the donkey has to come through the Lamb. Amen. (laughs) Even the donkey has to come through the Lamb. And that's an interesting little segment of verses. If you want to see where I'm headed with that, go read Exodus chapter 13, verses 12 to 15, and you'll see what I mean when I say even a donkey has to come through the Lamb. Then uh, the third major section of this saga the first being the beginning of the end the final straw that breaks the pharaoh's back the second being the passover when i see the blood i'll pass over you the third uh, third section of this second saga is the way out the exodus itself so we've had the plagues the passover and now the exodus itself the way out is through the sand and the sea and as israel makes this journey chapter 13 verse 17 continues this second saga and we find Israel in the edge of the wilderness. In the edge of the wilderness. And they're going to move from Egypt to Ethan. And then at Ethan, Pharaoh is going to have a change of heart and he's going to begin to pursue them and press them into being between a rock and a hard place, if you will. And we're going to see how God gave them a great escape. And they're going to be preserved by the Lord's safe passage through the Red Sea. Chapter 14, verses 10 through 31 show us that. And then chapter 15 of this second saga opens up with Moses' salvation song. I will sing unto the Lord, for He is good. I will sing unto the Lord. And it's interesting, when you look at chapter 15, there's two two major things that I see going on here. The first is that verses 1 through 18, you have Moses and the men singing by the sea, and then Miriam takes up her her uh, timbrels, and she leads the women, and the women join in, and the women are singing by the sea in verses 19 to 21. And that really closes saga number two. Saga number three will open up as approving grounds for Israel as they begin to be tested by Jehovah from sea to Sinai. And so they've gone from sand in the sea, now they're going to move from the sea to Mount Sinai. And the remainder of the book of Exodus has them at Sinai just prior to them going into their wilderness wanderings due to unbelief. And they're going to receive the law of the Lord at Sinai, that Mosaic covenant that I mentioned for our students as we began. But I hope and pray that just getting a bird's eye view of this second saga has helped you connect some of the bigger parts, some of the bigger moving pieces of this story of Exodus, this truth of how God historically brought His people out of Egypt. What an amazing God we serve. And He is able, as we sang as we opened, He is able to liberate us from bondage. And through Jesus Christ, we can be set free. Jesus can be our deliverer, just like Moses was the physical deliverer for Egypt, for Israel out of Egypt's bondage. But oh, let's learn lessons not only from Moses' faith and from Israel's oppression and their deliverance and from how God moved on them Let's also learn how Pharaoh withstood the hand of God and met his doom. And all that would, that would try to rear up against what the Lord would do will meet the same fate in the end. Because God is supremely sovereign over all. And yet He's a loving, 
benevolent God. And He loves us so much that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And if we'll come by faith through Him, we'll learn who the real I Am is. And we'll learn that Jesus Christ is that I Am. That even before Abraham was, He said, I Am. And He's the one, I believe, that spoke to Moses in that burning bush. I Am that I Am. And Jesus can be seen through these pages as the deliverer of the nation of Israel. And so when we have these encounters, let's make sure we're on the Lord's side. Amen? Who is on the Lord's side?